It's Zach Langley Chi-Chi. I'm so popular. Last week, we had Sharon Needles herself on the show to discuss her career along with Sleepaway Camp 1 and 2. This week, uh, we are talking about the Scream franchise headed by Wes Craven and the paintings of Francisco de Goya. I think I said his name okay. <laughs> and I have a, a very special guest, a fabulous sister, joining me live in my apartment tonight. Who are you? Hi, thank you for having me. Hey. My name is Angel Hart. Hi, Angel Hart. What are you doing? Um, I, well, like, right now. You tell me. <laughs> I am uh, trying to find my way in life as a drag queen in Tokyo. Beautiful. And uh, why are we friends? Why are we friends? We're yeah. friends because we both do, uh, I think, very alter- what you could describe as alternative mm-hmm. drag. Yeah. Um, and I think we I mean, we really clicked right away in terms we of our, our style and our personalities. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about this a little bit on the Patreon, but I was so, like, it was basically my first gig in Tokyo that I, I met you at. And I was, like, so overwhelmed with, like, how exciting it was to, like, meet a drag queen who has, like, a similar ethos. And it's, like, so rare that not only, like, meeting you, but, like, the rest of House Von Schwartz that you perform with, it was, like, incredibly cathartic. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> it really was. Well, I remember you said um, how how nice we all were, and I was like, who hurt you in the past? Because <laughs> we're all horrible. <laughs> I mean, no, it's, like, so true. Like, I think about... Some of, like, the cutthroat, like, stuff that goes on. Like, Laviana, when she came on my show a year ago, was, like, talking about how if you're, like, not out in Nichome every weekend, you're going to get forgotten, left in the dust. And, like, then I met a few queens, like, in Tokyo, who I won't say their names, but were, like, really bitchy and, like, rude. You're laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, in Nagoya, too, it was very competitive. But then... Well, no one knows who I am, so they can't forget me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like a non-entity in drag, so... I know, I feel the same way. I feel like, um, despite my oversized charismatic personality, <laughs> like, on the, <laughs> on the streets of Nichama, I'm just, like, another girl. There's so many fucking Oh, yeah, I mean, now queens. everyone's doing drag, yeah. Everyone! Can they, can they fucking stop? I want to be the star again. <laughs> People are like, oh, I just started this week, and they're, like, better than me after three years. I'm I like, know. Okay, well, that's nice. They're, like amazing performers they're like interesting they're like beautiful their makeup's perfect and like i'm still not blocking my brows like, <laughs> my wig is unwashed for three weeks you know <laughs> my lips never been brushed never been brushed never been brushed never been hairsprayed um but yeah so cathartic and exciting to meet you and tell me a little bit about house on shores and what all of you do okay so we are a uh, kind of goth drag collective in tokyo we formed very naturally we'd all been friends and we're all doing the same kind of drag or aspiring to the same kind uh-huh. of drag that was very, um, like, gothy. Some of us take a lot of influence from Visual K. Mm. Some of us, like me, take all of our influence from horror movies and horror movie villains slash heroines. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of uh, links to, like, the, the um, like, witch house music scene and Visual uh-huh. K music scene. Um, and my two drag parents, my drag mother, Natmara, and my drag father, Varric, have both been uh, musicians for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it formed very organically as we just thought, like, during uh, all the COVID lockdowns and no one was getting any gigs or anything, and we're like, why don't we do, like, a live stream show? And we did some live stream shows, and then finally we got to do some real shows and, like, got to do bigger and bigger venues. So I hope we can keep it up <laughs> and stand this growth trajectory, but... Yeah, we performed last week together because I performed as a guest um, competitor in an event called Casket of Horrors back in June. And I won, of course, so I got invited to do another <laughs> show. And um, it was sold out. Yeah, it was. Yeah, and the event was packed, and the performances were all across the board so fascinating. There were 
people on stage doing recreations of misery, um, people talking about AIDS on stage. Um, we had like, I, what would you call it? Like burlesque dancing. Uh, there was like, um, yeah, like burlesque or like, I I think she described herself as a um, as a stripper. She's wonderful. Yeah. It's a, a Japanese woman with a shaved head. She calls herself the bozo of the shaved head stripper. And she has huge, amazing body parts that are, like, so riveting to watch. <laughs> when I first saw her perform years ago, uh-huh. she had written, like, over her entire body in, like, calligraphy. Wow. Like, in, in like, neat, like, rows, like, on her, like, whole body. I and love she was that. just, like, a monk, and she was, like, <gasps> taking off, and it was, yeah, it was brilliant. We've, we've wanted to have her again for a while. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, and your performance, which I only got to see backstage um, after the fact... Uh, when you performed Bjork's All is Full of Love, <laughs> and you literally stapled paper hearts to your exposed chest. It is riveting. <laughs> I'm glad it was riveting. I did it uh, in rehearsal, and I um, regret making a bunch of holes in my body and, like, inflaming my skin during rehearsal, because I was trying to, like, um, uh-huh. foundation it down for the show, because <laughs> I was like, oh, now my skin's all red. Um, but, you know, I think it went really well, and I just did that last night, too. I did it again at a different art gallery, so... Yeah. I, I'm going to put it in the in the closet a bit for a while, because now all of Tokyo has seen it, but... That's right. But, I mean, I am so excited to see, like, drag that is, like, violent and shocking and controversial and upsetting, like, watching people react to your show <laughs> and the video. Oh, I loved... I was so glad I got to see the videos after uh-huh. people reacting. People gasping, like, literally clutching their pearls, like, turning to one another in shock. Like, that is my favorite like, reaction to a folk. Oh, no, no, I think that's my favorite show I've ever done, to be perfectly honest. You were fantastic. I love, I, you know, I liked the look, obviously. It was very, like, white, fluffy, mm-hmm. angelic. But I just, I really like people's reactions and that they were invested in it. And, like, you know, as you know, like, doing something that people have a real reaction to is, like, so rewarding. Yeah. I remember, like, my favorite, like, reaction I've ever, like, pulled was I disgusted some Brazilian girls in Nagoya when I pulled a bunch of chains out of my fake pussy. <laughs> that's really funny. <laughs> and, like, the video of them is, like, they're making this, like, moribund, disgusted face at each other and being, like, ugh, and, like, looking away. I'm, like, oh, I did it. I won. I got exactly oh what I God. wanted. <laughs> um, so today, we're, it's October, so every week uh, we're going to be discussing some horror. Uh, I did that, like, two years ago on my show and wasn't able to make it work last year, so I'm happy to be revisiting the format and, uh, I think this month, everyone but one guest are drag queens, so... Oh, work. Yeah, we have your drag mother coming on next week. Oh, is she? Oh, boy. I know, I'm very excited. Can you subtitle a podcast? <laughs> Can you put a transcript out with... <laughs> yeah, let me, like, put it. <laughs> I'm so excited to, like, hear her, like, get in her accent boots, like, getting, like, <laughs> getting, like carried away about our gentle movies, so that'll be fun. Oh, you're gonna do it? Oh, work. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, we're talking about horror, and we're talking about the Scream franchise and these uh, Goya paintings, but... Um, we talked a little bit th- about this on the Patreon, but what's, like, been your attraction and relationship with horror as an art medium? Okay, well, I've I've always, always loved horror movies for as long as I have, like, known what a movie is. Uh-huh. My father, uh, this was when my parents were still married, so I was quite young. Yeah. And my father was, like, polyurethaning all our floors, and we were just, like, hanging out for the night. Uh-huh. And he thought that was a good time to put on uh, Night of the Living Dead. Great. And it was, because I immediately was fascinated by it. Uh-huh. And absolutely loved it. He, I remember he, like, got in front of the screen when she gets beat to death with, like, the trowel. Because mm-hmm. I think he was probably rethinking his choice. <laughs> um, but uh, since then, I've always loved horror movies. I've 
very rarely even as a child was like really scared by them yeah although I do remember um, freaking out as a probably 10 year old watching Suspiria that one really got to me oh yeah Suspiria really got to me too and I'll talk about it next week but what what do you think is like the fascination especially for like gay little monkeys like us well, like I mean I think that definitely plays into it of yeah. like all you know these like garish like very campy visuals a lot of the time mm-hmm. I've always liked the trashy 80s movies even as a of child of course yeah so like the um you know like the bright colors of like something like Suspiria um I don't know the. I think especially like when you're in a situation that's like kind of tumultuous, like um, you know, as a child, unending, as a, unrequited love. As a child, yes. my parents were like separated, and like you know, there's a lot of like tumultuous stuff in my daily life. And mm. I think you find comfort in those, the you know, these shockingly violent movies. Maybe not everyone, but I do. <laughs> I know I certainly do as well. I remember like. I think I started, like, seeking out extremity, and, like, horror, of course, is, like, the one, like, medium that is all about that. And I think it's because, like, feeling like a traumatized, like, gay little monkey, <laughs> like, having, like, all of these uh, ineffable, impossible-to-articulate emotional experiences, like, it's so refreshing and, like, thrilling to see a director stage those emotions with a speck of irony and just putting them up there in the most, like, shocking extreme and, like, visually honest way possible. So, like, it feels like a production of your own feelings. Oh, Don't you think? I can see that. There were definitely so many female characters in horror movies that I really mm-hmm. identified with one to be, I mean, Dave Campbell and Scream, obviously, of course. Uh-huh. Um, but I also, I've always loved, like, villains. And yeah. I know it's a common, like, queer trope where it's like, oh, we like the villains. <laughs> so they're always, like, kind of queer-coded. But, like, you know, these, like, camp gay, like, or gay-adjacent villains are yeah. always... Um, been so attractive to me and like the idea of dressing up as as one of those villains is what always has fueled my drag yeah i know because you know once again i said this if you're not paying for the patreon you're missing half the stuff so you know pay up bitch but like honestly like it is so like drag is exciting because you can take those like images that keep getting buried with more layers of like (laughs) postmodernism, and then like stage them in like real time like these impossible to grasp you know sensational images and then like restaging those is like the ultimate goal for me I think with drag a lot of the time I think a lot of drag is about restaging too I mean in our past show um you know other drag queens have stapled stuff to themselves I did not invent that no yeah so in a way I'm restaging that kind of performance um you know restaging misery restaging silent hill yeah um I think we as drag we do a lot of like copying and pastiche and uh, restaging things and you know and hopefully adding to it yeah, of um, course. I like, mean, making Misery hilarious. Right. Oh, my... That Misery performance, I haven't stopped thinking about since we saw it. With, like, the the bat to the boner <laughs> is, like, the most incredible thing I've ever seen on stage. I was, like... You and I were standing next to I know, I was standing next it. to you. We were both like, oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> it's, like, fully well, That's what I love in, in a movie or drag performance or whatever. If you can catch me off guard, because I'm always, like, you know, if you consume a lot of the media, yeah, you can yeah, see yeah. where it's going. Once you watch a lot of horror movies... They they get less the scary formula because you're like oh this is gonna happen then the killer's gonna get up with the the knife or mm-hmm. whatever and you're always thinking about like the cliches and if it's gonna fulfill them or not and right when it defies that when it really catches you off guard or like disgusts you mm-hmm. um, I think that's like when I really become attached to a piece of media or to a performance where I'm like oh that was good because I didn't know where that was going yes I think that's exactly the same for me like whenever I'm truly like like physically like sensationalized by something and I'm like oh my god like that's so once you're, like, media literate, like you said, it's very rare to come across that. Yeah. So I'm constantly, like, digging through everything I possibly can to, like, feel that myself. So I think horror in general is, like, an important cultural practice because, uh, I mean, the idea of it is ancient. Like, you know, Dracula, all this, like, oh, yeah. stuff from forever. But, like... Frankenstein. Exactly. 
but it's like it's such a necessary part of our like cultural tradition because we have to like stage like these uh grody like disgusting parts of our existence on this planet and like make it literal in some way so like it's very interesting to me that like no matter like what era there's always been like this fascination with the grotesque in history yeah what i do like about it too is uh, i think similar to sci-fi it's always kind of about the present moment too. yeah I think, like, if you look at, like, Poltergeist, which is a movie I love, love, mm-hmm. love, and I watched that a million times as a child, and it's so obviously about, like, you know, the whole, like, um, Reagan era, like, not in my backyard fears uh-huh. of, um, like, you know, it's American consumerism and American expansion, like, yeah. built upon this history of exploitation or not. It's like The Exorcist, too. It's, like, it's obviously a movie about a little girl being possessed, but it's also, like, a movie about, like, the uh, terrifying, like, sadistic impulse that like is inside all of us and can just like become like surfaced into the present and having to deal with that it's like a, a really important like cultural process to do that and uh it's funny to me that like currently like art horror and like a24 it's like it's never been like as popular and like as accessible as it has been right now and i feel like it's because um everyone is, like, so, like, apocalyptic. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That, like, of course, like, the popular mode of entertainment is going to be, like, torture and, you know, grotesque, like, gore and stuff. Yeah. That's true. Just really having a moment right now. That mm-hmm. was the last, the last film I saw in the theater was Nope. Oh, I saw it. I loved yeah. it. Yeah, I thought that was incredible. Yeah, that fucking... I mean, I've talked about it, like, five times in the show, but it is <laughs> so amazing. Like, the UFO-eating people scene, like... And that whole movie is about, like, spectacle and, like... Yeah, the, exactly, and, like, the attention economy. And... The nightmare of the image and the fact that, like, we've created this, like, filmic medium that is, like, inherently perverse and, like, sadistic. And, like, uh, still reveling in it and, like, being yeah. excited by it, but also, like, trembling in fear with in front <laughs> yeah, of the, a monkey. The, yeah, the, the, um, the sublime, like, the... Mm-hmm. Something that's so, so beautiful or so, like, hard to perceive that you're yeah. scared of it. <sighs> I think, because that, um... I, I learned about that in college, too, like, the, um, you know, facing, like, the great mountains, like, you know, mm-hmm. two, three hundred years ago, and just being terrified by, like, the power that they had. Like, yeah. That I think we're still we're still recreating that in, in the technology that we have. I know, and it, it's, it's becoming, like, increasingly, like, more rare with, I think, like, uh, self-referential, like, art and, like, postmodernism, which, like, Scream is, like, 100% oh, the yeah, mother absolutely. of. Um, but, like, there is still, like, a really, like, interesting, like, kind of um original sublime horror in like that sort of self-referential stuff and the reason i i'm pairing goya with scream which are two completely (laughs) unrelated things you didn't actually tell me why so i'm excited to hear the reason is because i think that these paintings that we're going to talk a little bit about are some of the first like postmodern self-referential like images that are like they're beginning to refer to themselves in like exterior art outside of it um like uh, homodiegetic you know and uh, these are like tortured like nightmarish frightening uh, 19th and century paintings that are like so bleak and frightening and part of like their terror and what makes them uncomfortable is that they're reaching into like the art tradition so for instance looking at this one here on the right this is uh, Charles the Fourth of Spain and his family from the year eighteen hundred. Uh, it's like a a nice, pleasant image. It's a bunch of people standing. What what do you see in this painting? Hmm. Well, the first thing I think about. I'm trying not to get too close to this microphone. The first thing that I think about is like the light balance with mm-hmm. this whole like dark half of it right here. Yeah. And, um. You know, if it means anything for these characters to be on this side or not characters. Um, you can tell my brain is media poison. But <laughs> for these figures to be on this side and these figures to be on the other side and like. 
the light looks like it's going in this direction. Yeah. It may, but it makes me wonder what this painting is, this painting that we can't see in the back. Because there's a big dark shadow that's like slowly encroaching. And what where this becomes Wes Craven's scream for me is if you look a little bit over here, you see an easel and a man painting the easel. And you realize this is actually a mirrored image. He's looking oh. into a mirror and painting from a mirror. And uh, his inclusion of himself painting the... A portrait of these people is like really unsettling. Don't you think? <laughs> well, it definitely um, makes me think of what we just said about Nope too, with like the like the spectacle and like these people being on display and like observed mm-hmm. by the observed by the person creating their image. Yeah, exactly. And like the way these people look once you get close to their faces is they're disgusting. <laughs> look at this old hat. <laughs> This, this woman wearing a cute little flower thing that has, like, a, an enormous mole on her face and, like, looks like she's on crack. I love it. Even, like, the baby over here is, like, there's something wrong with that. Oh, my God. I mean, because this is a royal family, too. They probably just looked like that. Yeah, exactly. And, like, the fact that he just depicts them, like, very, uh... I wouldn't say realistically, because this it's is obviously, like... Yeah, it's matter-of-fact. And then the encroaching horror of the fact that this is self-conscious art exists and that in the image of Goya back there painting in the mirror. Yeah, I do like, because I know that was a common practice of the era, and most people would ignore their own image, but I like how he like deliberately included it. Yeah, he deliberately, and he includes the huge easel. And like, something that really frightens me about the easel here is that like, you realize that this image is there. It's like the image that we're looking at is on the easel. So like immediately there's like, several different layers of reality that are beginning to become unglued and frightening here. It's definitely, like, making the the viewer conscious of the act of its creation. Exactly. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this one over here, which is uh, one that I know caught your eye. It's a Time of the Old Woman from 1820. And uh, I think this might have come from his black painting era. He became really morbidly depressed, this Spanish painter, and uh, created a lot of... Um, Hor- like horrific, like truly like um, grotesque, violent, gory, unsettling art. In the excuse me, I'm like burping alcohol. Like in the bout- <laughs> in the bouts of his depression, and what we see here is uh, this woman, and she is uh, greeted by time, and we see uh, an immediate decay. What does this image suggest to you? I mean, the first thing I think of is uh, Dorian Gray, but mm-hmm. looking at the image itself. Um, I, I look at her clothes, to be honest, like, she looks like the, like, she's had a very rich, comfortable life, she has a lot of decorated jewelry and hair pieces, the dress is very ornate, I, I guess it's kind of like, time comes for you, no matter how many material comforts you can surround yourself with. Yeah, no matter how nice your dress is, like, I'm glad you called attention to it, because this is a very dark image, there's, like, one light beam on the left-hand corner, but the rest of it is, uh oppressively dark save for that one shimmering white dress but when you look at her face oh, oh no that looks like mia like at 3 a.m in nichome don't you think <laughs> look at her, her smeared contour <laughs> and there's you next to me yeah. like, <laughs> showing me something on your phone um and like it's so interesting to me that artists are like reaching into this like unsettling like nightmarish uh, acknowledgement of death like I think if people imagine, like, these, uh, 19th century paintings and imagine, like, a lot of hoity-toity, like, <laughs> like, but what this artist is doing, like, what Goya is doing is, like, really a confrontational act of horror with the acknowledgement of death. It reminds me of the older, like, Memento Mori paintings, too, like, mm-hmm. 
um, with the specific um, end goal of making you, like, rethink your own mortality, basically. Right. Which is, like, kind of, like, the effect of, like, slasher movies in general. Oh, that's true, too. Like, we're all all porous meatbags. Yeah, it's, like, a pageant, like, you know, death is coming eventually, especially if you're, like... A shimmering archetypal image, like if you're, yeah. hot, if you're a hot person. Then <laughs> if you're if you're a young hot version, it's super coming for you, really yeah, fast. Yeah. If you're a young, that's how it feels when you are in that position. Not that I would know about being young and hot, <laughs> but like when when you're when you're young, I guess, and you feel like you have so much left to do, and your death feels like impending. Maybe that's just me who feels that way. No, no, I think you're exactly right, and it's like we want to enact that violence on like the young hot big boob version because it's like those are the people who are like least aware and we want to like kind of vengefully strike at them and um sort of extract that like cultural neurosis upon them and like seeing this um what was once certainly a beautiful wealthy woman very treated well by the world seeing her reduced to a haggard bitch it's like (laughs) it's grotesque isn't it that's true too she does look like the kind of person who would have been like the the beautiful like or not ingenue but perhaps but the um what is that called? Debutante. There we go. Exactly. I love that, like, this is, like, literally, like, a slasher image to me. Like, this is, like... <laughs> this could be a cover, like, a slasher cover. Yeah, it's, like, it's like low, cheap art. Like, this is, um... I think it's, like... How do you say? It's, like, low-brow to, like, kind of make something so obvious of, like, uh, time, like, attacking the woman for, like, being pretty and making her old and <laughs> ugly. Like, that's, like, the camp, honestly. It's, like, this is the same kind of thing to me as a slasher movie. That's true. I mean, it's not very subtle. Not at all. Um, let's go on to this classic here. And this is The Burying of the Sardine, uh, from The Burial of the Sardine from 1812. And if you look here, this is from the end of a kind of like a big ritual that they used to perform. And it ends with them burying a little fish in the ground. And, uh, from a distance, it looks like it's full of mirth. Uh, but what makes this image really frightening is an enormous flag with a grinning face staring down at the people and the more you look you see these indifferent neutral faces uh, in the middle of this pageant and honestly like images of what appear to be like a reaper or a demon flinging people's bodies around and this is just like a horrifying decadent like portrait to me what's your impression yeah i mean like you said the your i immediately go to the face that's like just in the middle of um the entire painting and much larger than everything else mm-hmm. um but you're right when i was looking at it too the first thing i thought of was um how, like, the the revelers aren't really reveling. Um, there's a lot of people in this that look, you know, upset or, like, um, you know, like, participating against their will, basically, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Especially this girl looks like she's getting dragged away by this uh, demon creature. Yeah, and, like, her little, like, smiling face is, like, so piercing and hollow, <laughs> don't you think? It's, it's, like, really unsettling. Her position seems really stiff. Mm-hmm. She's got her... And, the other thing is, like, this is called the, the burial of the sardine. The fish isn't there. So yeah, I was it's, saying, it's a passion where is it? for nothing. So, to me, this, like, kind of suggests, like, uh, getting so swept up in a cultural force and, like, these terrifying things are happening inside of it and you're, like, uh, the large systems of government and culture are grinning, laughing at you as you're, like, being swept up into a uh, mush that you have no control over. Which it is very mass hysteria in that sense. It reminds me of the, um... Like, the Erogoro nonsense. Mm-hmm. Definitely that. And, like, thinking about the Scream movies a little bit and getting into them more later, like, they came at a time of, like, peak American violence when, um, you know, no one had been as worried about mass violence in history, I think, until that moment when all of a sudden, like, Columbine and 
violence and these um, huge cultural institutions are beginning to implode in like these bloody acts. It's like being in the middle of that, I imagine feels something like this painting. Oh, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I think especially um, with Columbine, like, like, you know, violence among teens who we like, culturally we are conditioned to think of like innocent or the young virgin that yeah we exactly in the last image yeah and then um also like you know real violence like not like a movie not michael myers like uh-huh. like a real person with a name and like a, a knife exactly and feeling like real violence that was you know over 20 years ago now and now i don't know how about you feel about this but like it's all become this painting to me. Like, oh yeah, the violence. Is the so, internet has become this painting. Exactly, because the violence is so distant and impossible to like resonate with that it becomes very like inhuman to like know that these like shootings and like horrifying acts are happening. It's also soulless that like you just feel like death is holding you up by the hand yeah. and swinging you around. Yeah, I don't know how you feel about that, but I feel like very like isolated and like cool and indifferent about all of these wretched things happening around us all well the time. i think that's what happens when when one you know there are all these mass atrocities of like it's very hard to wrap your head around like five thousand or ten thousand lives lost from something uh-huh. uh, like even if it's like a natural disaster or quote unquote because i don't believe in natural disasters uh-huh. um but also with the sense that like now we hear about all of them all the time all the time it's like, immediately told to you. like i could you know we can hear about every tragedy that happens every day across the whole world uh-huh. it's very hard to to keep up with them and connect with them all because you just can't. Yes, exactly. But this, yeah, this is Twitter, this image. It, this is literally Twitter. This is Elon Musk. Uh, Elon Musk. <laughs> and I'm the girl in white being slung along by the demon as all the tradcasts come to attack me. <laughs> uh, so I think to close off um, our discussion of Goya, we'll discuss this very famous painting that probably everyone knows best. Oh, yes. This is the, the classic image, and it's also kind of a meme now, which depresses me, but uh, this is a Saturn devouring his child. Uh, his child from 1819 uh it features uh saturn uh devouring his child it's a ancient mythic uh sort of classic reference and uh it's literalized here in grotesque unsettling detail unsettling is the word of the day if that's you true. noticed <laughs> i am i am embarrassed to say this because this is such a famous painting and everyone says this but i really do like this painting this is one of my favorites but i didn't think that at first when i like first saw this painting obviously i was um you know, very interesting. I think the framing is so beautiful with the body, like, in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, what really drew me to this painting was finding out that he painted this on the wall of his house. Yes. And that, like, people didn't even know it was there. And just when he died, they went to his house and all these horrible, grotesque paintings were just in his house. And he didn't... The fact that he made this for himself and didn't show it to anyone until he died. It is difficult. That, that really um, made me like it. Because the fact that it was just for him... And that he had to walk by this every day, assumingly, if he lived in that house. So, like, that really got to me. I thought that was very interesting. Can you imagine experiencing the emotion of this painting? And, I mean, it is impossible to understate how graphic this is of an image, especially for the 19th century, you know? Yeah. like. And it apparently originally had an erect penis. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Where did it go? Put it back in. Is that the little white smudge over there? <laughs> you covered it up. But, like, imagine feeling this layer of terror in your soul that like the only way to deal with it like drag is to make it a physical object that everyone else has to deal with everyone else is like oh god this is in your house god damn it (laughs) everyone has to deal with zach wingley (laughs) chichi i'm saturn devouring his child the fact that like the head 
is like still vaguely connected to the body, like the exposed buttocks, the blood. Oh my god. Well, it is very like, I mean, obviously if you uh, imagine the penis is still there, but it is still a very like, I think a very sexual image. Yeah. Where, where's the sexuality here for you? Um, I mean, not just in like the nudity, but like the idea of devouring someone and like taking them into Four. you. Yeah. Oh <laughs> god. <laughs> um, like, you know, I think, you know, making this person um, one with your body or merging your body with someone else always has a very sexual element to me. Yeah, I've always felt that, too. Like, the, uh, I've always, like, imagined that, like, the ideal erotic experience is to, like, completely dissolve my essence into someone else's. So, the fact that this is, like, so, like, ugh, that's, that's the word I want to use, ugh. But something kind of ecstatic probably is happening for Saturn. Like, this is probably a, a joyful experience yeah. for him. I think it's a very intimate kind of violence. Yeah, intimate Which makes violence. sense that's, like, his child. Eating your child and sexually, like, involving him into your DNA, processing his proteins into your own body, and then shitting him out. <laughs> I mean, animals do that. I want maybe, that maybe, maybe not with, like, the, the same level of sexual ecstasy, but... I mean, I've been saying this a lot recently, like, in the face of, like, Dahmer and stuff. I feel like cannibalism, like, underrated. Like, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like eating people is, like, a joyful... I'm just kidding, but you know what I mean? <laughs> How quickly can I get cancelled for saying that I believe in <laughs> But look, Saturn's got that look on his face, you know. that That is the face with these eyebrows upturned, big, bulging eyebrows eyes, mouth again, like, agape. This is a face of, like, tragedy, horror, and total <laughs> a little bit of woo. ecstasy. Like, woo! Oh, a well, I, bit think, of I think the face is what makes this really, like, a, a painting that has lasted through the ages. And is I agree. Probably the one painting, if people know Agoya painting, is probably this one. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, me until uh, an hour ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think the face is what makes that. I think that's what has driven this into our minds, because, I mean, that doesn't leave you you know, you see that once and you don't forget what it looks like. Exactly. So thinking about all of these Goya paintings, it is um, refreshing and startling to see someone feel such terrifying emotions about their own uh, sexual experiences, the social and governmental world around them, and then to make a literal object out of it. Like, that's true horror to me. No, I agree. I think, again, like, the private nature of this and the fact that he just made it for himself, really, mm-hmm. that, if anything, that freaks me out. Yeah, it's disturbing, but it's worthwhile. I mean, imagine like, living locked up with the f- sensation of this painting, like in your soul. Like, I'm so glad he like uh, made it real. Like, I think that's like why horror is an enduring cultural force. It's like we all have these uh, truly fucked up, frightening impulses inside of us, and to like lock them away in privacy is gonna make you uh, disturbed. Yeah, you got you got to paint it, mutate. and that's how you end up like actually like. Eating, eating someone, someone off Craigslist, yeah. Yeah, because, like, me saying, like, I want to eat someone on my podcast, like, means I don't actually have to eat someone. <laughs> but if I never said it out loud, you know, who knows what would happen. <laughs> There's some poor 34-year-old muscular Japanese man. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. <laughs> Hello? Yes? Hello? Hello? Who is this? Yes? I don't know. Hello? Hello? (laughs) 
hello, hello, hello. Scream is a fabled film franchise originally from 1996, directed by Wes Craven and written by Kevin Williamson, a personal favorite of mine. And thinking about the Goya paintings and exercising cultural horrors and literalizing them in their most frightening and abstract shapes, I feel like the Scream franchise is like secretly a very deeply disturbing and horrifying postmodern reflection of internet media, uh, like, repetition. And the whole thing to me is uncanny and terrifying in a way. I haven't seen anything else. And a lot of people imagine Scream as, like, funny and, like, campy. And that's true. But yeah. <laughs> it's very true. But re-watching them, I was taken aback, actually, by how disturbed I was, by, like, how, like deep and cynical these movies get into like the idea of filmmaking but i know that scream is like your all-time favorite movie. oh yeah absolutely i think it's not it's my favorite horror movie the horror movie that i think is like the best in my opinion uh-huh. is the thing i love the um, thing that's, that's great that's one where i'm like oh this is like the best horror movie it hits all the points that i like uh-huh. but my favorite is scream because the scream just has such a special place in my heart so tell me about how that movie uh, wormed into your heart and refused to dislodge um so back when i was like young watching horror movies it was as i'm sure you remember the the video rental store age yes and so my father and i because uh, obviously my mother would not put up with any of the shit so my father <laughs> and i would go rent the horror movies and um he would you know if i picked something that he thought was like too above uh-huh. Where we were, he would say no, like Last House on the Left or something. But um, but Scream made it through, and we um, watched Scream, and yeah, I was just hooked right away from like the the visuals of it. At the time, it was not like retro to me yet, right? Um, so like you know, like the the clunky phone that um, yeah, Drew it, Barrymore has. The when first I first thing, saw like, it, it wasn't nostalgic for me. Yeah, either. exactly. It, like it was very in that moment. Yeah. Um, because yeah, I probably saw it less than ten years after it came out. Because I was, we were both born in nineteen ninety six, right? That's right. Yeah. So. Yeah, it wasn't, like, that old, I guess, when I had seen it. Although the right. sequels would have all have come out already. Yeah. Um, and then, I think just because it maintained its quality through the sequels, too. Like, mm-hmm. 1, 2, and 3 were all, like... I would call them all good, even though they're not all, like, as good as the as other the ones. First, yeah. But I think because of that, I was always able to, like... I'd introduce it to people as, like, this is the franchise where everything stayed good. Uh-huh. Because at the same time, I was really into Nightmare on Elm Street, and those fall apart. In the best way ever. Yeah. Yeah. But these movies definitely keep their tone and every single entry has its own like unique comment on what it's doing. And um, the general premise, if you're not familiar with these movies, which is like crazy to imagine. It's, like, mean, that's the thing. Is that it's so important that like you can't even be like, if you've never seen Scream, like. Yeah. The movies follow um, a series of serial killings in the town of uh, Woodsboro until the third, which is in L.A. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's true. But th- mostly, they're all in a Woodsboro. It's a very, like, Halloween referential. It's everyday suburbia, and um, a killer makes, like, vaguely sexual, menacing phone calls to a pretty young woman and threatens them on the phone and then butchers them with a knife. And um, what kind of makes them a little different and uh, revolutionary for the slasher genre is the most important piece of the movie, which is their postmodern, self-referential genre acknowledgement and you having like watched these at the age of like 10 or so how did you like feel about like that element of it i don't know i mean i'm sure i did not have a fully formed concept of it but i think because at the time i was watching other horror movies uh-huh. it still like somehow got across to me that like this one was this was a horror movie in which the characters have seen a horror movie which yes. is not true for so many of the previous Everything. ones yeah of, like 
you know, when you're like, don't go into the house, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis or whatever. Right. Like, don't go in that room. Like, I think that's very instinctive as a horror movie viewer. Like, mm-hmm. the, don't do that. You're doing the wrong thing. Don't you know you're in a horror movie? Yeah. I think even, like, having, you know, if you, even if we, you see your first, like, horror movie, you could theoretically have that response to it where mm-hmm. you're aware of what genre they're in and they're not. Mm-hmm. And I think Scream was, like, the first one to really be, like, all the characters know what genre they're in. They've all seen horror movies. Yeah. All these horror movies exist in this universe. And they endlessly talk about that. I was just going to say, when we were watching 4 and 5 back-to-back, I was thinking, so much of this script is just the names of horror movies. Yeah. There's at least one scene in, in both of those movies where the characters just list a whole bunch of horror movies. Right. And it's, like, it's so funny to me because, like, I think I started getting into these myself because it was, like, in my big high school Netflix DVD rental rush. Because uh, my local DVD rental store was very much closed down by then. But I came across the joy of Netflix DVD rentals where for, like, ten bucks a month, endless art movies would show up at my door. I'd, like, watch Punishment Park and stuff. And um, I watched all the screen movies very quickly. And I was so riveted by, like, that, like commentary and i think people now and like contemporary viewers and like zoomers especially like have like an automatic like lens of nostalgia for it and they think it's like funny and campy and kind of like gay in its own way for being referential but i've always found that element to be disturbing and gross it feels like like michael haneke funny games to me (laughs) oh yeah well i think they're very nihilistic ultimately they are or at least the killer's viewpoints obviously are like there's no, there's no real, like, hope in any of them. It's just cynicism for media and for movies. There is absolutely no joy or ecstasy in these movies. And every single one, even though it ends with, you know, the acknowledged trope of a final girl or whatever, every single one, like, still, like, refuses to escape from the media pattern. And then each continuing sequel digs deeper in and becomes more morbid with, like, every entry yeah i think each one also just i i'm and i'm really glad they did this is that mm-hmm. it it doesn't fail to highlight the compounding trauma of going through this a million times mm-hmm. like like i think sydney prescott is very much like i mean maybe not very much because in real life you'd probably just be horribly traumatized but yeah she's very <laughs> she's very much like what the final girl would be in real life if she had to do this a million times yeah exactly she's like the logical extension of the final girl and she th- she's so exasperated and tired even yeah, in the she's second like, movie she's like oh god I've gotta go you know find another killer or two yeah it's always two and like Neve Campbell is that how you say her name I've always thought it was Nev Campbell I don't okay, know let's just say Nev yeah. then Nev Campbell like who is very beautiful she's oh, very gorgeous, pretty yeah. she's fascinating to look at and seeing her just become more put upon and disinterested and exhausted with each movie <laughs> it's like living like commentary in the moment but yeah, I'm sure that's how she feels about having to do these movies, too. Oh, yeah, especially with the last one. My God. But the the first movie is really special, and it has so much going on behind the scenes. Like, this movie was, like, NC-17 over and over again. They went through eight rounds of cuts before really? they could get it to be R. And it was all because uh, Harvey Weinstein's brother, like, really believed in the mission of the film. And the only reason they were able to make it happen is because of Drew Barrymore, who wanted to play... Sydney Prescott. Right. But due to a scheduling conflict, she was uh, relegated to the first uh, the first dead girl. And that first, like, ten-minute sequence of uh, Casey, that's her name? Yeah, Casey Becker. Casey Becker, as played by Drew Barrymore, getting stalked in the house, talking about horror movies, and then 
killed in oh my god that's that's a really gruesome kill like we were oh, talking yeah. today about four and five being gruesome i think that's the, it's the, the most worst. horrifying yeah. thing in the whole franchise it is rattling it still is disturbing that scene is like peak cinema for me it's oh, yeah. perfect it's tense it's really terrifying it exists in this vortex of information feeding back onto itself and drew barrymore gives the performance of a lifetime screaming oh yeah have you ever seen a horror performance as strong as that? I don't know. I mean, she's such... She's had always been such a good actress. Like, mm-hmm. even up until that point, she'd been acting for years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, maybe it was not the best for her personal life. Nope. Uh, but <laughs> I think you can see those years of experience in that scene of, like, she's so young and already so strong. I mean, she was tortured by the industry. Like, she, yeah. like, at the age of 12, was, like, doing lines off, yeah, I know. you know? I guess Wes Craven apparently had, like, to keep making her cry in that scene was, like, telling her about, like, puppies dying or something. Oh. She, like, loves animals. She's such a pure soul, too. I know, she's so sweet. I was just talking about, like, how, like, her, like, most recent, like, talk show was, like, kind of uncannily joyful, and she's, like, reveling in the <laughs> ecstasy of the No, I know, I love stuff. watching clips of that. But no, I think she really just, like... I mean, maybe pulls that out of that energy out of her from those experiences with Hollywood. We, no, have to, we totally don't know. Does. But yeah. I'm 100% sure she does because the whole scene is framed around her like answering questions about classic horror yeah, movies exactly. on the phone. And watching her get like tortured by movie trivia and then getting butchered by it is like so real. And that scene works so well because we're still not in the the era where we're like, oh, the first one's gonna die. So, like, yeah. there's real stakes for her, like, survival in that scene, too. And it, it happens so fast. The burning yeah. popcorn in the background. Oh, I background. know, the popcorn. Oh, it's just... Wes Craven is, like, really, like, a horror master, and he's made a lot of shit movies, too. Like, <laughs> Oh, that is so true. Oh, my God. Some of the worst films I've ever seen out of that man's asshole. But, like, you can see him, like, really... He's passionate about the franchise. Like, he really cared so much about the mission that they were getting across here. Yeah. yeah. The whole thing, the whole first movie is just, like, an endless, like, a, like all of the scenes are tense and scary when they're yeah, happening. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember watching it when I was in college, too, because they, like, showed it for Halloween, one of the big mm-hmm. auditoriums. And that was the first time I felt it was kind of retro, too. Oh, yeah. Like, that was the first time when I was watching her with the phone, and I was like, oh, this is... But the big retro thing is when she's on that stupid computer calling nine oh, yeah, that is an inexplicable sense. text-to-speech program that makes no sense at all. <laughs> but that is, that, when I rewatched it in college that time, was when I first started thinking about, like... Like, the fear of technology in Scream, too. Because when oh, we yeah. think of horror movies that are about the fear of technology, I just think of, like, Kaido, like, Pulse. Yeah, I talked about that recently. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, I love that movie. Yeah. Um, or, like, you know, I'm sure there are a million other technologies. Yeah, like, sure. The Fly or whatever. Like, right. you know, the the horror of, like, man using machines. It's very ambient in these movies. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. It, like, it almost goes unnoticed because it's more about, like, the... Or at least we think it's more about the post-Columbine Scream horror, but it's also about, like... Mm-hmm as we've seen with 4 and 5, to, like, the internet observing you and the yeah. the phone, like, talking to someone you can't see, although that's been explored in other movies. Well, it's that Goya burial of a sardine. Like, it's, like, getting, like... There's so many, like, huge cultural mechanisms that are happening in the background of these movies that are just kind of turning these people who... They all really act well and, like, really give, like, a human embodiment to their characters. You can see, like, the fascination of, like, the OJ case. Like, you can see, like, the encroaching crush of technology like the impending violence of columbine you can see all of those elements like in the background of these movies like turning human beings into little horror toys that are like making these like wind-up doll like comments about the whole thing and it is so nothing else has ever done it like these movies have it's high art for me yeah, I think it's led to so many, like, um, self-referential horror movies like and they're all um, horrible like, what is that one? <laughs> 
The one that like Sigourney Weaver pops up at the end. That was the worst description oh, I could have oh, given of that. Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, Cabin in the Woods. By John Sweden. Yeah. yeah. That one I don't think is terrible, but it's I, not as good as Scream. Definitely not. And it wouldn't exist without Scream. And the first hour of that movie is horrible. The only thing I was interested in is the very end. And also the <laughs> hot guy who's in Grey's Anatomy. What's his name? Oh, the guy that's like the love interest? Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, he's really hot. Yeah, he has that scene where he's, like, stripping. Yeah, no, that was hot, yeah. Thank you, Joss Whedon. Thank you, Joss Whedon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but, like, no one has ever been able to, like... Right, you can't touch that, because now it's so... I think you need to also love horror movies. Yeah. Like, Wes Craven, obviously, having made most of the iconic horror movies, Mm -hmm. obviously has such love for the genre that comes through, in that he's really... um, Invested in the future of the genre, let's say, and that's I kind agree. of what he's commenting on. Well, Last House on the Left, which he also directed, is yeah. one of my favorite movies. Really, that, I love it. Talk about a brutal movie. I have a hard time sitting through that. Movie. Oh, it's so brutal, and it's brutal because it's not treated as brutal. It's like pornographic in a lot of ways, and that like stupid banjo, like campy guitar music that plays over it. Like that movie was like innovative and in how disturbing it could get. And like when he did stuff like New Nightmare. Um, oh yeah, which is awful. Oh, I mean, it's no good. It really is rough. Which is too bad because I love the, the concept. concept. I love it. I think Scream is his reworking of New Nightmare. I think like so too. Um, like, you know, that didn't go well. And he's like, all right, let me tweak this a bit. Yeah. And so then when he does it with Scream, I mean, he made a whole new genre. Like, every horror movie is, like, referential in some way now. It's all, like, melted in the postmodern glue. But when he did it in this movie, it was, like, so fresh and exciting. And, like, I just can't get over it. And another thing I love about the first movie is I love the men of these films. <laughs> they, I don't know what happened. Maybe it's just because it's postmodern, like postmodernity is like inherently gay. All of the men are deeply sexualized in a very, very strange, like atypical way. Don't you think? I I think honestly, for me in the first one, um, Billy is so like the yeah, like Billy so Mendes. deliberately like teen heartthrob. Um, like the styling that they've mm-hmm. done with him and everything, um, he looks but like he, Johnny Depp and crime. Yeah, movie. but he's also so suspicious right off the bat. That's hard. It was hard for me to like see what Sydney would have seen in him. You know what I mean? Well, he's sexy with those. He has he, me and him have the same kind of eyes that are really sunken back in our head, and he has that cute little haircut, and he's wearing those shirt like the shirts that are like cut all the way up to here. See, I think we have a different vector because I'm deeply attracted to Matthew Lillard. Oh, he's so hot. Are you kidding? And especially like in Scream. Like yeah. Stu is the one that I would go for. Oh, great. We, that means yeah, good, we can split them. We can yeah. split it. <laughs> and I love the idea that like he is like sexualized throughout the movie. Like he's like such like, an imposing like libidinal force and then like him being ultimately revealed to be the killer. He's very smoldering. He's very he smoldering. Has, like, Sydney, I care so much about you. Know I mean? Why won't you touch me? You think I'm a killer? <laughs> oh yeah, well that's the whole the whole aspect of like the I always forget about that. Yeah, in screams that the whole deal about her virginity too. Oh my god, it's crazy! Like, because she, she ultimately gives it up to him. In the yeah, and then the it's movie. like you shouldn't have done that. Yeah, it's that's the Halloween impulse of the yeah. movie that always punishes for giving into the the pleasures of the sin. But like, it is really special to me how much like. Wes Craven, like, spends time, like, focusing specifically on, like, their relationship, and, like, it feels to me that he's actualizing, like, a lot of really classic feelings that, like, young women have about, like, the anxiety about 
um, their first penetration, and that him turning out to be a merciless, like, killer rapist is, Yeah, like, it's like the, the it's fear the that liter- you have in real yeah, life. I know, it's like the literal fear of it. It's so, like, bold to me that he did that. Oh, I love that. I do really think that Sydney comes comes right into the first scene of Scream as a fully formed character, too, because we have the whole thing with her mother. Nev Campbell is a fantastic actress. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, every single character in the first movie has a rich story going on for them. Yeah, they feel like they're, like, real people. Which which yeah. we, we see we kind of lose a bit throughout the franchise. But. Uh, yeah, with each entry, it gets lower and lower until it's just abstraction. <laughs> but, like, yeah, it feels so fully lived in. Like, Woodsboro is, like, a real place. And um, I'm curious what you think about Gail Weathers. Oh, I, I love Gail. As played by Courtney Cox of Friends, who took this role to uh, be a bitch. Because <laughs> she wanted to clean up her uh, scrubby image. And, oh my god... The media, the depiction of, like, news media, which, of course, like, at the time with the OJ trial and, like, so much uh, sensationalist, like, Maury-era true crime going on was, like, reaching an all-time high. It feels very biting and cutting the way that they well, depict yeah, she's her. definitely... I don't think in the first movie they really wanted her to be, like, the... They hate her. Yeah, like, she, in the first movie she's just this, like, cutthroat, like, hounding Sydney. Uh, accusing her of, like, what, like... Writing a not, book about the... Ra- yeah. Yeah, yeah, first of all, writing a book about, like, Sydney's mother and, like, accusing her of all this shit. And yeah. then, like, you know, telling Sydney she identified the wrong person in court, which we ultimately find out she it's did. It's true. Oops, but... Oops. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't worry about that. But, yeah, no, she's, like, the, the caricature of, like, the evil media, like... Uh-huh. Um, Maven, I guess. Yeah. But I but she's so iconic in like the suits and so like fucking fierce. and fucking Courtney Cox. All of those haircuts that she has throughout the whole franchise, every single look is just like serving fucking cunt on the run. <laughs> oh, and when Sydney punches her. There's so many like really iconic moments in Scream where uh-huh. you like you like really cheer for like Sydney like going through the whole thing and um having to because she's at the heart of that that Goya painting with the, she's like the sardine getting buried, I guess. I know. Like that's she's so she's like true. she's the sane person in like the world full of like crazy people. And the thing to me about her is that until honestly the last movie, um, she's never like affected by like the postmodern demon. Like she never becomes like a referential character. And obviously everyone else, including Gail and uh, her love interest Dewey, the the sheriff. I think he's deputy in the first movie. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone else in the movie is, like, subject to, like, the molestation of becoming, like, image and trope. But throughout the franchise, until the last movie, she refuses that. And she's a human being throughout the whole series. It's incredible. Yeah, I was thinking, as we were watching the fifth one, I was, like, calculating how old she would probably be, like, in the fifth one. Assuming that each movie takes place in the year it came out. Yeah. Um, And she'd be, like, you know, 44 or 45 in that last one. Mm -hmm. And I do think this is a good way to, like hopefully transition her out of the franchise. Yeah, get her out of there. Yeah. But she's, like, <laughs> deserved it, living through this five fucking times. I know, and making her do the movie five fucking <laughs> times, too. Like, her... I, I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel like her career and her character in Scream are, like, very, like, very deeply connected. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I think that's the number one role people know her for. Even absolutely. She, like, she, you know, she's been other popular movies, like, Wild Things and stuff. Uh-huh. But as an adult, I think they think of her as... As, as Sydney. Sydney, yeah. Yeah. And Sydney Prescott is, like, such an image in the franchise. Like, she becomes, like, this all-consuming figure and, um, in the second movie, which I love as well. I love basically everything here, but Scream 2 is especially deeply loved by me. Um, this is where they really double down on the post-modernity I was gonna say that, like... The first scene is amazing. It's these uh, two black, young, uh, sexy a man and a woman, and, uh... It's, isn't it Jada Pinkett Smith? Is that her? I think so. 
No. Are I think she kidding? I think she's Jada Pinkett, but What? Is that I think watch me be wrong. That'd be no, no, I but... hope it is. If that's true, that changes everything. No fucking way. In any case, regardless of who it is, like they like immediately comment these are movies are white people about yeah, like, no, white I people love that. getting cut up. Like I don't want to go see this shit. And then like, um, her death scene is like, it, it's yeah, fu- and people, it's fucking funny. People games. thinking of it, thinking it's part of like some kind of show. You're and... right. It is oh, yeah. Jada Pinkett Smith. She looks so hot. Oh, she's gorgeous. Not now. Yeah, well, I mean that was pretty, <laughs> that was 1998. <laughs> she's like a, such a rotted evil like figure now. She she became Gail Weathers like, oh, in real life, but like. In that role, she's so fierce. She's so stunning. She has a whole fully lived-in personality in the five minutes of screen time that she has. And when she gets butchered, um, they go to a, a premiere of the movie Stab, which becomes a reoccurring uh, force in the rest of the franchise. But it's a recreation of the first movie. And we are seeing like an Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0 like loop of everything. It is a recreation of the first movie as represented by a fictional film in an audience full of people, dresses the killer, and then she is brutally murdered at the screening, at the Goya spectacle, and then dies as the image of the ghost face is projected onto her. How did they come up with this shit? <laughs> I was going to say, before you even said that, was that's... The second one is, I think, where it really falls into that, like, meta-postmodern uh, groove that it hits. Yeah. Because it's one thing to, like, make a horror movie, like, kind of aware of horror movies and, like, playing with horror movies, but once you they start, like... They, the they do the whole like sequel rules and creating the stab was just a stroke of genius like the oh, stab yeah. series because then you get scream movies in which scream basically exists yes and that's like that fuels like all the rest of them i know and like the existence of the stab franchise is like really fully fleshed out and it has its own mythos going on through the whole series like we know the actors who are playing the characters. Like, they appear David Schwimmer's in them. Like, it feels like a really fully real thing in the movies. And, like, the more time we spend with it, like, it makes you also rethink Scream. And Scream 2 is especially important because, like, uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar. Oh, yeah, work. Yeah, Buffy, Legend, Icon, and other Kevin Williamson movie. Uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love that movie. Me too. Yeah, written by the same guy. And, uh... There's that great scene in the in the beginning when they're having their media studies class and they're talking about the uh, influence or lack thereof of violence in uh, violence from cinema in the real world, and it's like really like shockingly like I, I don't even know how to describe it. It feels like horrifying to watch that happen, like have them having those conversations about violence and, and everything in the medium in like these all of these like black hole layers of postmodernity. I can't believe it. I do like that Scream, it never really takes a stance on that either. No. Like, it's it's almost all about, like, copycat killers and, mm-hmm. and people being influenced from the media um, to kill. So, I mean, maybe it is kind of taking a stance, I don't know. I, I guess I can't really call it not taking no, a stance. No, no, I think but... it doesn't. I really think it doesn't, it never tells you if media is, oh, well, now I'm thinking about this. <laughs> I think the ethos of Scream is that media is evil. Well, I, I think so, too. I think like, technology is, is causing this, basically. Yeah, like, culture is inherently evil, is, like, what the movie says. But it does not say ever that culture creates violence. It refuses yeah. to comment, which is really interesting. And this movie, too, went through all of, like, the NC-17, like, oh, yeah, debacle. Sure. Like, they had to cut it a bunch of times, and they actually sent a gorier cut 
to the um, ratings board beforehand, hoping that they think, oh no, don't do that. And then they would just like send the normal cut in and get past with that. Um, Scream 2 is not as good as the first. That's true. I do like that it starts to get into like, that is, again, like I said, the discussion of the sequel, I think that's very clever. Um, I do too. We lose like the, the Randy character who is a lot of fun. Yeah, played by Seth Green, right? Um, I think it's uh, Jamie Kennedy. Oh, I thought it was Seth Green the whole time. I think he's in um, the other one. The, Seth the... Green is in Buffy. Oh, is he in Buffy, really? Yeah. he plays Seth Green is Buffy, is in Buffy as the werewolf character that dates Willow. Oh, I didn't get that far about you. Uh, you, you don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, like, um, I, I, I like the movie for it introducing all, like, the, the really serious, like, uh, commentary elements. Um, and that's that's when Gail becomes a little more human, too. Like, where we, yes. start, where we start to see Gail as, like, someone who is helpful. Oh, and, okay, the the back half of this has some really genius, like, uh, actorly, painterly moments when it's, like, when when Sydney decides she wants to be an actress. Yeah, I say when she's inexplicably in this play, yeah. And so the whole time, we have this, like, Evangelion, like, episode 26 thing where it's, like, filming a stage, and it's, like, so obviously fake, and, her, like, her in, like, this glamorous makeup, like, doing, like, this Grecian part, and the whole thing to me feels like this, uh, like, evocation of, like, oh, like, we've been visiting, like, these themes of violence, like, throughout our culture, and it becomes, like, more continually disgusting and a joke and unbearable as, like, the uh, set design like, becomes yeah. literal. Like, you, looking at the stage, like, you really feel like you're watching, like, art break apart into pieces. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say, I think it's so important that the, the finale, the climax happens on, like, that stage, mm-hmm. too. Like, we have the idea of her being, like, oh, like, you know, as her life story is becoming this movie where she's played by Tori Spelling, which I think was brilliant. Oh, so How good. she makes that joke in the beginning and then they cast <laughs> her and stab. But, you know, her whole life is becoming this movie now yeah. in front of her eyes that she has no control over. Um, and her, like, deciding to be an actress in that movie for that one brief second because they don't do that anymore in the sequels. But um, that almost, like, that moment almost discouraging her, perhaps, in her, like, internal uh, narrative of her life. But becoming like this you know the stage actress and having the whole Uh final thing happen on the stage is so brilliant to me it's so brilliant i especially love the last thing when she uses the set of the stage to kill the oh yeah she pulls all the ropes yeah and like we have the whole thing coming apart yeah um like the the fucking corinthian columns that come crashing down like crushing what it's mrs loomis yeah 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 it's the mrs loomis mrs loomis (laughs) i love when they walk gail into and you're just like no (laughs) oh also Gail inexplicably falls into a pit of mist that makes no sense. At Isn't that the all? orchestra pit? Oh, is that what that is? <laughs> There's like a trap. They have like the big pit in front of the stages for the orchestra. The whole geometry of it is like really. I mean, yeah, they they're stretching the. But I love it though. I just can't get over like the. Is it the second one or no? It's the third one. She gets killed in, like the sound stage. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, we can talk about the third movie. Um. Oh, before we do that though, the second film has another gay erotic moment where um Sydney's boyfriend is crucified. Like he's like shirtless, isn't he? Yeah. He's like fucking shirtless and crucified and like being like pulled up to heaven. I was like, what the fuck? This was like in a popular like nineteen ninety seven film. What is going on? I do like how they do that with him too, where it's like it's gonna be the boyfriend again. Just kidding. It's this other random dude that we don't know. Yeah, and then he becomes a Christ-like figure. What on earth was? Yeah, Wes basically, like, you know, to sacrificed and martyred by Cindy, basically. Oh, but she has to do it to actualize herself in the Nietzsche and will to power as the survivor, the lone survivor. She has to kill. Jesus. Oh yeah, the love of lone survivors. Yeah, uh, as Jill Roberts says. Oh my God. 
I love that. I can't get over that last scene with the fucking the crumbling stage of fire and like hell death. <laughs> it's like all of these like fake plastic things exploding. I know. Them. I mean, it is, it is the like the worst college production of whatever play. Do we, we even know what play it is? I don't even remember. It's, it's like, like Medea. Or yeah, something, there's like made right? up Greek play and like yeah. the, the worst like budget for that possible in this like tiny little city. What world are you living in? I don't need friends. <laughs> begun the entry into the pool of post-modernity that Scream 1 and 2 suggests uh, we dive all the way fully in in a disturbing and malfunctioning way with Scream 3. Uh, what do you think about this movie? I think that's where it hits its like movie mania. Because it's still mm -hmm. 2000, there's not like the internet to worry about yet. But that's where it really like delves into like the self-referential process of filmmaking of like, Here's, what is it, Stab 3 in that movie that they're making? Stab 3, they're yeah. Trying to, oh yeah, of course, it's a third screen movie. Yeah. They're trying to make Stab 3, and people keep stabbing the people in Stab 3. <laughs> and, like, I, that's when, like you said, it goes into, like, L.A., and, like, it takes this nosedive into, like, movie culture and, like, the the act of, like, the audience watching them make a movie about making a movie. That's, this is also, the most, that's like, also about killing people. It's so, this movie's depressing and, like, texturally gross. It feels, like, uncomfortable. This is also one where, like, I was saying this to you earlier, but this is also one where I I think the script just went through too many, like, butcherings. Because yeah, Kevin Williamson didn't write this one, and he did the other two, and I think Kevin Williamson is a genius. Oh, yeah, I mean, his, like, the ear for dialogue alone is great. Yeah, like, um, Teaching Mrs. Tingle, which is a... Oh, my God, I love that movie. He directed it, too. Oh, really? And that Oh, is... but didn't that, like, flop? And it then flopped. He, and then he never directed it. And everyone hated it. Yeah. It's a genius movie. That's a really funny movie, yeah. Yeah, it's fucking brilliant. It's fascinating. It's, like, really funny. It's, like visually the fascinating too I, anyway like he because of like some like uh things he had scheduled previously they couldn't write the script for this one and it uh, really shows yeah i think so because wes craven was rewriting the script every day because he'd get the pages from this other guy yeah and, and he'd be like oh god this sucks. Like, this yeah. isn't the way that these characters talk like you don't have the characters right he'd have to like rewrite on set and it definitely shows because this is the messiest of the first three and you can tell that, like, um, Columbine happened in the very early stages of the production. They had to rewrite the script several times. Was that not 98? Or, sorry, 95? No, Columbine was 1999. Oh, wasn't it? Oh, wow, okay. My internal I clock know. is all messed up. No, because it's, like, the only way I remember that is, like, it's what made 2000 happen. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's all I always tell myself. And so, like... You... Oh, so they had to move it out of the high school, basically. Yes, because you oh, told me originally that they were going to do, like, the, the killer was going to be the actress who plays Sydney. Yeah, it was supposed to be her and the director. Because there's always... That's the only movie there's not two killers. Yes. Um, spoiler if you haven't seen Scream 5, I guess. But uh, that's spoilers the... for everyone. Sorry, you got to deal with that <laughs> on my show. But that's um, that's the only one there aren't two killers. Mm -hmm. And, like, in the script, they're so obviously meant to be two killers. I know, and you can tell that the element is lacking there. But it's all made up for it for the truly uncanny like repulsive shots of 
Sydney Prescott in a reproduction of her own home. Oh, getting yeah. Getting chased by a killer. This is one of those things where it's like the fucking like postmodern like vortex into the drain like begins to just spiral out of control, and you can feel everything ungluing and becoming like celestial and like existential and like just how like weird it is that this is like a blockbuster movie like with four different layers of cameras going on. It's a camera filming a camera being filmed by a camera. I think that's where we get thematically closest to New Nightmare too, mm-hmm. where it's you know New Nightmare is Heather Langkamp reliving her nightmare. That she had as Nancy in her real life. Right. And, like, it's almost like the mirror image of that, of, like, Sydney Prescott, who's theoretically the real person. Yeah. Having to relive, like, the, you know, her own trauma through the the fictional version of it steps. It's yes. like the reverse of New Nightmare. The most important part of this movie is Parker Posey. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because this movie <laughs> features the most fascinating dynamic, which is Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers, with Parker Posey playing... Gail Weathers as Courtney Cox, and they have this, like, like camaraderie hatred for each other, and their whole interaction with the, the horrible streaks in her hair from the previous movie. It is out of this world. I I would say, I think that was the first thing I said to you today when I came over was, uh-huh. Scream 3 is so camp and fun until it falls apart when they kill Parker Posey. Cause yeah, after it, that, it stops being fun. Yeah, then it's just, like... It just gets arduous. It's so arduous, because, like, okay, the killer is the director, Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, of course the killer is the director. That That's what is literally true. I don't care. In the I, mean, gr- I mean, in that case, Wes Craven's also the killer. Like, of course you know he I mean? is, yeah. yeah. What was his motivation again? He's like... Oh, because um, Maureen Prescott is oh, his right. mom, and he's Sydney's half-brother. He's the Marilyn Monroe. Like, yeah, and she- like, because... Um, inexplicably... Like, this is probably the worst part of the whole mythos, too, is when inexplicably Maureen Prescott, like... Is a whore. Well, that, that, that was there, the first one. But like, oh, yeah, she's no Sharon Stone. Uh, but, like, when she explicitly was, like, was in L.A. and, like, in Hollywood for, like, this very brief period. And then, you know. I, I want this. Then it, it got pregnant with Ronan, like, had him there, I guess, or whatever, and came back. Like, <laughs> if I was going to do a Scream, like, entry, the, what I would do is, like, the backstory of Maureen. Oh, I know. <laughs> like, in well, Hollywood. I mean, the way they make these um, prequels these days, like, we got the Nurse Ratched prequel. They probably Someone has pitched that script already. I'm I so know. Sure, yeah. It's not going to be me directing it, sadly, but I would love to do it. I would do Blonde, like, the new Marathon. Oh, my God, movie. with Maureen Prescott. Yeah, of it's course. Maureen. It's on Maureen. <laughs> everyone's like, what the fuck yeah, Who is, is that? Is? Yeah. And then it it would lead up to the first shot in Scream, but I would, like, do it in a... Uh, sorry, I'm getting, like, a... I like that, though. Here. Thank you. <laughs> I'll do it anyway. <laughs> the only... The thing that makes this movie fascinating for me is literally just, like, the stuff on the soundstage and uh, Parker Posey, because, like, that stuff is, like... It's gross to, like, watch, like, the filmmaking process happen on film. Yeah. Well, that's... I mean, that reminds me of Shark Dreaming, like, the whole movie on a soundstage. Yeah. It's like very Dogville by Lars von Trier. Have you seen it? I have not it? seen that. No. It's all. I know a... you. You recommended that to me when I watched Kingdom, but yeah, because it's all on a soundstage. It's uh, Nicole Kidman getting like raped mercilessly, like chained, oh, like chained to like some like architectural figure, like fixtures in the town, and, like dragging it around, like feeling miserable. And that whole movie is also about like how like art is evil, like America's evil, like stop making movies, like it's just like oh, I love that. Yeah, that's the whole thing, and like this movie is saying the same thing, and there is no. There's no escape. Like, even when, like, Sydney like, does her, like, yes, slay and boots, like, you know, kill of the director character, it doesn't feel good, and the movies keep happening. Yeah, she actually stabbed him in that scene. Do you know that? Oh, that's right. <laughs> she misses the... Nev Carroll misses the padding. That happens in the first movie, too. Oh, really? Yeah, they ask... Because, uh... Who plays Billy Loomis? 
Um, mosquito rash. Yeah. So actually, he had like had like heart surgery or something. Oh, Jesus. And she like the, the stunt <laughs> actress like missed and like. Oops. That's so funny. Jesus. Oh my god. But I mean, well, that's a, that's perfect. The blending of real life and horror. Yeah, because like, the screams of pain that he had were real in that yeah, scene. Yeah. The same thing with uh, the director too. I don't know who plays him, but I don't know either. Nothing. <laughs> the most forgettable character in Scream. Oh, yeah. The probably worst of film all the things they like reference again in Scream. Uh huh. That's like the the one movie that they they, they never they don't re-reference anything in in Scream three and Scream five. It feels there. like it's not there. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay. There's the guy who plays. Cotton. Oh, yeah. Lee, Cotton. Lee Schreiber. Yeah, Lee Schreiber. And Cotton becomes a reality TV superstar. Oh, yeah, I love that. I love that, too. That's definitely the pre-internet, like, thing. It's the whole OJ thing. Yeah, exactly. Because he wouldn't have been, um... Like, you know, he'd be like... If he was in Scream 5, he'd be like a podcaster. Yeah, he'd be, yeah, he'd be definitely <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, But, like, you know, he becomes this, like, radio personality out mm-hmm. of that. Well, yeah, because, I mean, that's also the, a big running thread of this, is people profiting off this yeah. um, this disaster, just like the way people profit off horror movies. And the, the whole, every single time anyone, like, makes, like, a success out, or, like, a, they, they try to, like, make a product out of, like, what they've done, it's very pessimistic about them. I mean, he gets gruesomely butchered in the, yeah. the first scene. And, like, every single character, he's like, oh, I'm gonna turn it. Like, they all suffer immensely for yeah, it. Yeah, even Sydney, she eventually, like, she has that moment where she's like, I don't care about this, and she hands the media off to Cotton at the end of the second one. Right. She eventually writes her, like, book. Of course. Like, yeah. Like, every, everyone, including Sydney, ends up profiting somehow off the Woodsboro disasters. I mean, this is, this is innately true for, like, contemporary catastrophe. Like, oh, we, yeah, absolutely. We all search out pariahs who can, like, be, like, a reference point, like, angelic Laura Palmer, like, tragic figure. And for... we all wanted to be in the, the tragedy, too, amazingly. Yes. We all do. Like, I mean, everyone wants to have, like, a mass, like, serial killing, like, butchering happen to them. Like... Yeah, I mean, that's the whole point of the fourth one, I guess, is, like, mm-hmm. if this happened to me, I'd be as famous as Sydney. Let's talk about the fourth one, then. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm skipping ahead. No, 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 I want to. I love the fourth movie, and re-watching it today, I loved it way more than I even did before. Yeah, I would say, watch the fourth one, um, you know, I watched it right when it came out, of course, mm-hmm. and I was in high school by then, and... For me, you know, I felt like I'd been waiting a long time for another Scream movie. Right. And I had given up the hope that one would happen. Yeah. Um, so it was very exciting. And I remember feeling that all my expectations were met. Like, yeah. it, I felt like it had delivered. And I was very excited, all the, the you know, typical horror fan. I was very excited, all the nods in it. When they, uh-huh. like, when they do the two fake-out beginnings, that still holds up to me as, like, my favorite beginning after the second one. Yeah. Oh, sorry, after the first one. Sorry, what am I talking about? No, me too. I completely agree. That f- the, the whole movie is, like, a... Bu- it's not about recalls. That's what the the most recent one is. It's well, that's about because no one says that with the word. I've never heard that word yeah. said out loud before in my entire life, and I'm sad that I just said it out loud now. Someone <laughs> execute me! Stop trying to make recall happen. <laughs> I'm not gonna make it happen. <laughs> but like the the first um, sequence of this movie has not one but two like fake out murders happening within stab six and stab seven, um, respectively, right? Yes. And that is like I mentioned, like the postmodern drain. That is like the movie. The whole franchise climaxes in that that fucking moment. Absolutely, for me. I think so. And um, God, what's the name of not Anna Paquin who's in True Blood? Uh, Kristen Bell. Kristen Bell oh, stabbing yeah. Anna Paquin. Who, first of all, I adore Kristen Bell, and she uh-huh. has to live up my dream of um stabbing Anna Paquin because no one likes her. <laughs> I can't stand even in that one scene. I was thinking like, wow, just cannot stand. Her. I like her in True Blood. I liked the True Blood book, so I didn't watch the show. Oh, I, couldn't stand I the show. like those books too because they're like gloopy soap opera. Yeah, I know they get so crazy, they, but they, like, yeah. but she was not someone who I thought like I didn't envision her when I thought of the character. Yeah, 
it's so it's so funny to me because like the like death of that that scene like it really like just climaxes like the whole franchise for me like multiple movies happening at once and then people commenting about the state of film and then yeah it's like stabbing someone for it. i want to do that and i love that um uh anna pickens character in that too is like She's like, oh, I hate all these teens going on these, like, clever monologues about horror movies as she goes on a clever monologue. Monolo- yeah. Like, it's it's always, like, folded in on itself. Yeah, it's the Ouroboros. Absolutely. But also, I think 4 and 5 is when they really committed to, like, subverting all the expectations. Mm-hmm. I think the first thing is more of, like, oh, look, it's, um, you know, Sarah Michelle Gellar exploring the empty house or whatever. Isn't this stupid wink? Like, there's the wink yeah. as they f- fall into established horror tropes. Right. But I think four and five, they're committed to just playing with it as much as possible. Yeah, there's not a wink here at all. Yeah, there's no, it's yeah, exactly. just what it is. It's like exactly upfront with its uh, intentions. And um, I don't know about you, but I have like wanted to stab people about their opinions about movies <laughs> like endlessly. So honestly, like I'm just like yeah, waiting to that, do that's it. That's like when people like Avengers. That's how I feel. And you're just like, oh, like you really think that like fucking No Way Home? Like, Shut up! I actually did feel that impulse after walking out of a Marvel movie. And I was, like, trying my best to be, like, a wholesome friend and be like, oh, I had a nice time. I fucking hated the movie. I was, like, Which miserable. Was or do you remember? It was No Way Home. Oh, oh. I didn't even recognize that. It's a, it's a new title Spider-Man Oh, boy, shit, okay. Crap. Cool, Spider-Man. Oh, it was so horrible and depressing. And it's, like, it's, like, scream, but not kidding. Because it's, <laughs> like, I'm not even kidding. The whole movie is, like, them, like lifelessly <gasps> dragging out these, like, people from the, like, previous oh, oh, movies. Oh, that's, no, that's true, the self-referentialness. And putting them in front of a green screen, and then everyone, like, m- like lifelessly flapping lips at each other is, like, nothing CGI gloop is how, it feels like stab. It's, a, it's, it's also, literally stab. It's also, like, that's how, I mean, I think that's what Star Wars has become and stuff. And, like, oh, the, man. The, the callbacks to, like, the, you know, as people like to say on the internet, the callbacks to, like, gloop shitto. I, so, um, I like the second one of those Star Wars I've movies. I've never seen Star Wars. You should give it a whirl, actually. The first three are, like, breathtaking cinema. I've heard, I mean, I've seen the... I'm a big fan of practical effects, so I... You'll love it. I think the... I've seen some of the practical effects of the first one. And even, like, the prequel trilogy is, like, perverse and, like, weird enough that the fact that it got made for, like, millions and millions and millions of dollars and, like, everyone was watching was like, what the fuck? Well, that was when CGI was fun, too. And it was yeah. like, look, we can do, we can make aliens. And now it's just like... <laughs> Everyone's like, we can make people. Don't yeah, do that. Now it's like, we can make Iron Man um, in front of a big explosion. They're like, whatever. Wow, crazy. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think that's what the... I'm, I'm not jumping ahead. I'll go back to the fourth one. But I think that's what the fifth one is being fun of, too. Uh-huh. It's like the self-referential nest of like marvel films for instance yeah that always have to call back to stuff for the fans well because like the russian nesting doll of these movies is that there's always one more layer that they have to actually pierce and like it's i i really like scream as like a goya painting like it's like a fucking cultural barometer where it's like gauging the state of the art and then making this really cynical depressing and uh you know very easily recognizable like series of images that perfectly encapsulates what's happening and even though i didn't super love the most recent one it definitely does that but scream 4 does it the best i think out of any of them like the first movie has its perfect statement but like in terms of like that nesting doll the fourth movie to me is like the most like biting and pressing about it so i do think the fourth i mean i think the general trend of like becoming more cynical in cinema too influenced that but it is definitely the it has the least path of escape Especially for, like, yeah. Sydney, because that's the one where she shows up with her book, and, like, she's... Now she's finally in the media circus about Woodsboro, even though she's tried to escape it so many times. Yeah, and now she's, like, so entrenched in it that it's in, 
it's like inexorable from her personality. Yeah, yeah, like her publicist being like, "You're a victim forever." Like, even though the publicist character were not supposed to like like her, but um, she's everything that she said is right. She's she's the new Gale. She's the evil media person. Yeah, and, and she represents the whole like. Um, media circus around the Woodsboro murders that... Yes. And, like, where they are in that point in time. And, like, her role in the movie is, like, to comment upon that, like, directly. Yeah, exactly. And then, like, to be, like, a literal... I mentioned this to you when we were watching it today. Like, I love it when, like, movies just, like, make a bitch out of a woman so they can, like, lifelessly execute her and not feel bad about yeah, it. Yeah, and throw onto the, and throw onto the news truck during a news conference. Oh, my God. Like, it's, like, so scandalous. Like... It makes so much sense, though. It's, like, if you're gonna, like, make the comment of, like, the media circus and, like, of course you want to manifest out a human being that you can, like, ridicule and then yeah. butcher and throw on top of her own, like, mechanisms. Love it. I love yeah, her no, death. No, I know that. <laughs> I mean, that's a really great scene. Watching her, like, fall also is, like, pretty, like, corporal and, like, nasty, don't you uh, that's think? that's true. Yeah. And we don't get a lot of falling deaths in Scream. No, we never... They th- they love I mean, well, she was already people. dead, but, yeah. They love throwing people off of things, but we never see them fall, and so seeing her, like, plummet onto us, like, oh, oh, dear. <laughs> um, I think my favorite scene in the whole movie is um, Hayden Pantier as uh, Kirby. Kirby Reed. Yes, Kirby Reed, who... Uh, Gives my favorite monologue in the whole series when she's on the phone with the killer. And then she just, like, lists every remake. It's, like, cynical and, like, horrible. It's, like, so yucky when you're watching it. You're like, ugh, gross. That's what I was thinking, too, when I was saying, um, I don't even remember if I said this to you or if I said this on the recording at this point. Mm Because we've been doing this for so long. I know. when I said so much of the script is just, like, just paragraphs of horror movie names and nothing else. Yeah, you did say that. Oh, I did? Okay, good. And that's the most, like, literal moment But, yeah, that, that moment is, like... Especially, and it's so cynical because she's supposed to be like the horror fan, but she's listening to so many like mainstream like movies. And... Yeah, I've heard a lot of critiques about like oh, why are these like teenagers like into Suspiria and stuff? Like no one's into that, but actually like teenagers like are into that now. Absolutely, Tick- like this movie like got it right maybe a few years ahead of the curve, but it's like TikTok teenagers are like constantly like looking for things and like they don't watch things to like love it or feel moved by it they watch to like check it off like a list like oh, yeah. lifelessly I, I feel like that encroaches encroaches on all of us like i yeah. i have to fight that tendency it's a letterbox yeah. habit you know like oh yeah i don't i mean i don't use letterbox i mean like, i do but it's but like, like it, but it's the letterbox is just the physical or not even physical because it's a fucking it's the digital manifestation uh-huh. of that thought process yeah it's like the it, collector mindset it's so, the collector mindset which yeah. and i have to, again i i very actively i mean look at my that. perfume counter over there <laughs> like with the fucking evangelion figures like, i'm 100 percent guilty of that also, like, i also have a bunch of um i have my eva figures and perfume on the same shelf too, every actually. gay man who like loves art has a perfume evangelion corner in their house it's like their catholic shrine for their like <laughs> oh dead moms God. and stuff like, <laughs> my shrine well, I, for also, <laughs> I have my literal shrine to the tower of the sun um <gasps> statue that yes. i have a million figures of in my room but yeah like you know it's it everything lends itself to being collected nowadays yeah gay men loved it's okay when gay men do it, is my opinion, because it's like gay men are like little rat creatures. Like <laughs> my climax posters, my Madonna record, like the most obscure thing I have in my house is this um this uh, mini that? disc. Oh my god, work! It's from a movie called Private Lessons Two that I did an episode about about a year and a half ago now, and uh, someone bought this. My friend Samuel bought this oh, for cute. me as a gift. Do you have like a mini disc player? Hmm? Do you have a mini? No, no, I've never heard this. And the fact that this physical item exists and I own it, I'm like. <laughs> well, I love that. I love that. Like, I have a bad habit of collecting like ephemera and like old train tickets and shit. Oh yeah, I, you I, just and but like it also. I think this ties into Scream too. It does. Like, it feels like the past is slipping away and like. 
I have to make we it need, real. We need to grab one of these pieces of I it. I was such a pat rack after... Pat, pat rack? Pack rat after my trip to Korea. I'm like, my ticket stuff. Like, oh my god, like, this coin. I literally <laughs> have a folder in my house for, like, all that shit when I come back from trips, and it's just, like, bulging. I have, point. like, 50, and I'm like, especially because I, like, feel like a permanent tourist in Japan, like... You know, I got oh, this. Yeah, I and I, oh, look at this like receipt that I bought from it, like an Evangelion lottery. <laughs> but like that collector impulse is like I think like gays like feel passionate about it and like I love this art or this experience so much. But like with Zoomers, they're like, I have to do this so that I can say that I did. Yeah. And they like look at you with dead eyes and like, yes, I saw that movie. So you don't think of yourself as a Gen Z. No, because I don't, I, the, I think that there is a difference between like, the year and everything, but like, the main divide is, like, if you grew up at one point in your life without internet. Oh, yeah. Okay. And my, I was living in the woods. <laughs> like, we didn't have dial-up until I was, I didn't have like, a computer until I was in seventh grade, yeah. Exactly. So if you didn't have a computer or, like, online, you're not a Zoomer. And yeah, I mean, I had used the internet before I was in seventh grade, but, like, I didn't, I didn't have a, a permanent computer access in my house. That's the big thing. And I think that's... That's true. I do think that influenced me a lot, especially compared to people who are my exact, our exact age and yeah. did have that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. By the time we were in middle school, I was like, oh, I can see the... I've been left behind already. Because the other thing is if you remember 9-11 or not. Oh, yeah. I mean, not really, no. I do. Like, but, like, in what capacity? I remember getting taken out of school. Oh, well, same. But, I mean, like, I don't really... I don't remember I the... I don't remember the 9-11. I don't remember that, but I remember, like, the day I remember happened. the day, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think I remember it in, like, a meaningful way. No, I don't either. But if you have at least a, a memory of it, like, texturally even, I think that's enough. And Scream is all about this. It's all about, like, trauma happening to the culture. It's, like, the really easy, like, academic thing, but it's, like, these horrible, like, terrifying cultural mechanisms that we can't touch. It's the Goya painting, and then registering that into, like, broken modes of art. And Scream 4 is, like, the most right about this because it's so depressing. And the main villain is Emma Roberts, right? Yeah. And her her motive is that she wants to form herself into this uh, cultural mold. And I love her. Yeah, she wants to be like the final. She wants to be the final girl. She wants to be Sydney. Yeah. In a world where Sydney is this venerated survivor, like if if Nancy, um, oh, what the hell is her last name? If Nancy in, in Nightmare on Elm Street were oh, yeah, yeah, were yeah. real, exactly. Like, in that world, if she had been like known for that, or um, if Jamie Lee Curtis was like a real person, that's not what I meant to say. No, but no, you're, you're <laughs> right. It's if, like if if, uh, if Laurie Strode was a real person, yeah, like the cult of personality that has uh, um built up around Sydney and she again Sydney's finally in that media circus because it's like I think that's almost like Sydney taking control because I was going to say Sydney never has any control over this she never she doesn't get to make any of the stab movies right no one consults her she (laughs) would she wouldn't want want to have been consulted it's all Gail driving that yeah um but she I guess she is in her own way taking control by writing the memoir and like jumping into this media stream but notably a book like she doesn't make a documentary or something Mm -hmm. Which Gail Weathers also does, but well, her true. books she are books, exploitative yeah. trash. Well, yeah, know? she writes the, the tawdry, like... What does she call it? The Westboro Murders or something like yeah. that? Yeah. Clever. Very, very bright. I do love how they give, like, both that book and then just, like, Stab in general such a dumb name. Like, oh, I think yeah. that really shows um, their opinion on stab. it. Stab. Like, <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah, it's just like, stab. But it's, like, the most visual action that happens over and over. I, like, yeah. Because that, that's what you watch Scream to do. You don't watch it to Scream. You watch it to see people get stabbed. Stabbed, like, exactly. I feel like the Emma Roberts role and, like, it, I feel like it's just so genius because, like, it's um it's very true for, like, people our age and Zoomers. It's, like, we, like, grew up with this oversaturation of archetypes and it's, like, what are you going to do but, like, try to, like, make that work for you? Yeah, like, you're well, gonna we try grew to... up in the wake of so many tragedies like Columbine 9-11 mm-hmm. and, like, the people who get, like, Rachel Scott. 
I don't know if, I don't know if your school had to do the Rachel challenge, Yeah. but like we did Rachel's challenge and like, you know, um, not to comment anything on Rachel Scott as a person, but the way her image has then been used as, as a, yeah, as an abstract uh, reminder of this strategy or like Anne Frank who stands in for the Holocaust. Exactly. It, the, Anne Frank is fascinating. Yeah. It's like Sidney Prescott who stands in for all of these murders, yes. which stand in for all the real life murders. And this happened with like Me Too as well, where like everyone, including, um, oh my God, what's her name? Rose McGowan, who was oh, in yeah. the first Scream yeah, she sure movie. Is. Iconic. Yeah. Beautiful. Iconic That's why I wanted to be fierce. an awesome child, by the way. I wanted to be... <laughs> I wanted to be Tatum Riley. I want to be in the... I loved redheads. I want to be in the garage and get my head... Oh, the the most iconic death in the whole franchise, oh, I think. Oh, for sure. It's... When her head pops in that first movie, like, ooh. And that's why when you see the garage door in the um, fourth and one, you, yeah. like... That's, you know... Oh, I mean, because I, I had that very... Because we talked about how, like, the callbacks to fan reactions and uh-huh. creating this whole, like, Russian doll nest, but... Yeah. You know, I had those genuine reactions watching the fourth one first time where you go, yes, the garage door! Yes, death! Yeah. Because like, <laughs> it's real. I mean, like, we all want to pursue these archetypes. They all sit with us so severely, and it's, like... You know, I think about, like, Me Too, which, you know, did what it did, and it really turned a lot of people into, including Rose McGowan, into big, like, skeletal, empty, like, figures that everyone projects, like, imagery onto, and, like, Scream is, like, so right about this. It's, like, unnecessary for a horror (laughs) movie to be so right about it. But this scene, when she is, like, viscerally abusing herself to, like, prove that she was, like, the final girl, when she's, like, stabbing herself in, like running into the glass. I mean, it's gay. Oh, I know. She runs into the, the painting. When she runs full force into well, the frame picture. Well, I said to you when we were watching this, this is the, the maybe the gay impulse to root for villains. Yes. But this is the scene where I feel like it's kind of a shame that she gets caught. Like I think that the way this series should have happened is that she wins. I would say if she had won and it had like, I mean, then they would have never been able to make another sequel so they wouldn't have done it. But uh-huh. like if she had actually triumphed in that moment, like it would have been such the... The culmination of all the themes that they've been building up the I know, whole time. and I feel like there's an impulse in the script that they want to do it. And yeah. Like they, I feel like someone told them not to because, like, can you imagine Scream 5, but, like, we have, like, the specter of Emma Roberts, like, having been successful? Well, yeah, if they, if they had waited 10 years in, like, if Emma Roberts had won and then they waited 10 years to make Scream 5, so, like, the same way mm-hmm. as it is reality... They could have done something with it. Absolutely. I think an immediate... If Scream 4 had been a big success, they wouldn't have been... They wanted to do more sequel, with yeah. them. But every single day of my life, like, I feel like I am also Emma Roberts in that scene. I'm striving to, like, create the archetype in my spiritual living, and I'm running full force into the frame picture. I'm stabbing myself. When she, like, puts the knife on the door and just, like, runs <laughs> and into she kicks it. The, like, the kick, she kicks the end table. And she jumps onto the glass table to, like, fully heathers. I'm like... <laughs> She, like, literally is, like, doing what everyone should do. She's living passionately and, like, doing everything in her grasp. Like, make it real. Well, no, I mean, that's the thing is, like, that is what wins me over about her in that scene is the genuine, the, you know, the um, pathological dedication to this (laughs) one goal of, like, being this, the sole survivor final girl. And why wouldn't she? Because in 2011, like, think of how much we built up that archetype. Yes, I mean. Through movies like Scream. She's right. She's right. Jump on the fucking glass table, cut yourself up for art, and make yourself a real, like, tangible figure. Do it, bitch. Honestly, work. And she takes out, like, the... <laughs> the other the other guy, Charlie, is, like, too obsessed with the movies. Like, he's living yes, in the movie. because she's living in real life, and he's living in Suspiria. Yeah, she wants to be Sydney, and he's, like, trying to, like, make her Sydney Prescott. Exactly. Oh, God, it's genius. I, like... 
I was telling you during the scene when we were watching it together, I'm like, this should be a drag performance. Like, I want to, like, do a drag show where it's, like, me injuring myself in, like, multiple different ways, like, running into the glass picture and stuff. <laughs> I feel like I've, like, I've reached the limit of what people will let me do with, with self-injury on stage with stapling. <laughs> I don't know if I can do anything worse than stapling. You know, there's always I've a considered new threshold. It, I want to piss on stage eventually. I mean, Alaska, I was thinking about that because when you interviewed Sharon, I was thinking about like all the things she'd done. I was like, I know Alaska has like Pissing. pissed. Yeah. Blow jobs, blood. Yeah, yeah, I would crap. love that. We can do that at I at Heist. Oh, really? You can be naked on stage. They'll let you. At Heist? Yeah. Huh. They're, I mean, they're a hardcore, um, like, like more like punk venue. I would absolutely they'll, piss on they'll stage. They'll definitely let you um, be <laughs> naked. I don't know if they'll let you piss. If you have a receptacle. I'll get a receptacle. A person. <laughs> Oh God! I'm sh- okay. I'm, I'm gonna control over telling you this because then you're gonna do it, and, and they're gonna be like, "Please so, don't do that." Someone's gonna be like, "Angel, why did you? Why, why did you, did you want tell to... Zach Langley she 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 can piss on stage, and now there's like some faggot getting pissed?" Oh my God! Oh, that'd be so iconic. This is the last country in the world we can do that in. Oh uh, well, that's what makes it fun. I know. That's something you said that to like Sharon too, and I think that's shared by like, you know, I feel that way. I think that drives most of Belgium's output is like. I can keep pushing. Yeah. There's like some can... new layer. And, like, you know, I have to teach myself to push, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. I've spent most of my life, like, not pushing and yeah. being, like, exactly what everyone wants me to no, do. No, but you gotta do Emma Roberts. Jump on the fucking yeah. glass table, bitch. Pee in the mouth of someone bring on stage. In, bring in a glass table and smash <laughs> Well, smashing glass sounds fun. I Okay, the one thing I did is I broke a computer monitor with a baseball bat. Oh, that's sick. That's th- so That funny. scared a lot of people. I love that. I saw... Th- there's a video of it, and, like, it's funny because it has, like, a, an audio lag, so the sound of me hitting it and people going, Ooh! Is like two seconds before it happens, oh my God. and you can see like four. It's always the Brazilians in the front row being shocked. <laughs> we, like, we don't have those. Into- no, they're not in that's Tokyo. A, that's such a so yeah. 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 <laughs> Oh, it's always the, the the Brazilian people who are at every event, and I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. What? You're like what Brazilian? Fasco Stolso? Oh my God, <laughs> bye, Bisha. So, with all of this self actualization, we come to a very confounding and interesting entry in it, which is Scream. 2022, right? Yes. This year. It's called Scream. Should be called Scream 5. And they make a joke about that in the movie, too. But they really just should have called it. Yeah, where they're like, why is it called Stab 8? It should be called Scream 5. I don't want to call it anything but that. It's, like, not right. It's Scream 5, bitch. I've seen it written with, I don't even remember which letter the 5 is. Probably the S, right? I've seen them do the, oh, it might have been the S, yeah. Yeah. 5 Cream. (laughs) (laughs) I hate it. Um, This movie is interesting to me texturally because... It's full of, like, the Zoomer casting that they do now. It's, like, very, like, diversity cast. Like, we have, like, bisexual women of color in the film. Uh, We have, like, bisexual, like, male jock. It's, like, it's very, like, diversely cast. It feels, like, very euphoria um, but they go through the exact same cycle. Yeah, they, done, they've yeah. they've made it like the the new like. Although I fucking love. I've said this to you when watching the it. bisexual I, girl. I love Jasmine Savoy Brown so much. She is such a talented actress. She uh-huh. show she has roles that give her more range in other pieces. Wait, of media, is this the say. girl? Is this the victim from the? Wait, this is, no. This is um uh Mindy with the with the with the with the with the pin. She has a little gay pin. Did you not see that? Oh, I must not have seen that. Because she's a bisexual girl. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. She has a little pin, and it's the pride flag that has the black stripe in there, too. I, was I like, didn't even see that. To me, I was like, kind of like, oh, this is kind of based in red pill the whole <laughs> time. Because it's like, they cast all of these, like, diversity, like, you know, like, very recognizable. And it's great. Like, they're all really interesting characters, even though they have no script behind them. 
but they all get butchered no matter what. Like, none of them get to, like... Well, they do survive. Well, two of them live, yeah. Yeah, two of them live. But it still feels, like, equally as vicious towards them as the rest of them do. Well, yeah, I mean, if, if anything, it is very equal opportunity. And it is. And the the violence is the most brutal of the whole franchise. And that first scene is... Uh, ne- oh, yeah, with um, Jenna Ortega, yeah. Yeah, who is great in that role. When she's in the... When she does the call, the murder... Is not a murder because she survives, but the rest of the details are like very formulaic. But it's like done in like the most brutal it's ever been in the franchise, except for the yeah. first movie. I think it it's it goes in the formula, but they like they talk through the formula the whole time. Yeah, they tell you like this next this is gonna happen, and then it like does. Yeah, when she gets stabbed through the hand, and it's like going, oh wait, that's brutal. It's fucked up. I love I love a hand injury. I love a hand stab too. We we gotta put that in our movie somewhere. <laughs> like a hand stabbing, <laughs> but like yeah, it's like seeing her get like uh, assaulted in the way that everyone else does, and it's just like even more like visceral. I was very impressed. It made me feel like um they're really like trying to make this feel resonant in a way that yeah. is kind of challenging for the franchise formula. Yeah. What else did I think about this movie? Not much. <laughs> well, we were talking about how, like, the melding of, like, the legacy characters yeah. and, like, kind of passing off the torch from Gail, Dewey, Sydney to mm. um, the new crowd. Because obviously, I think, you know, Sam and um, Tara are going to be, like, the main characters for in the future. Right. They've, they've tied Sam into it with, like, the Billy Loomis her, is her father connection. I hated that they kept showing him in the movie. I mean, I was like, I mean, talk about bad digital effects. Oh, horrible. I think, that, I think they were trying to de-age him because they wanted him to be, like, young Billy in her mind, but... I, but... I was just like, just don't put him in the movie and show her, like, babbling to herself with no context and it'd be, like, much more interesting. Um, but I love how haggard <laughs> everyone in the movie looks. Like, okay, Dewey, as played by Dave Arquette, David Arquette. Yeah, as, he, as the alcoholic, like, forcibly retired sheriff. He's very sexy in four. He's fine in three, and in two, he has, like, a nerve injury and, like, looks, like, broken. <laughs> but, like, he looks like shit in uh, this movie. Well, I mean, that's the other thing with um, keeping doing a franchise. Like, you eventually your your cast ages. Yeah. And it's like, can you work that into the script or not? Like, 50-year-old Nev Campbell is not going to be, like, rolling around, jumping from second-floor balconies. And she looks exhausted with this franchise. And I think it's intentional to a degree. Like, her, like... Their role in the movie is very minimal, honestly. It's like, um, have you seen Final Station 2? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like clear in Final Station 2, where like, she's supposed to be like, handing off. Who's like Allie Lauder, right? Yeah, Allie yeah. Lauder. Where, I mean, obviously that was made right after Allie Lauder looks the same, which yeah. is bombshell hot. But um, <laughs> I fucking love Allie Lauder. But it's like, I think her role in that movie is the same, where she's like, yeah. to be passing the torch down to them. Right. Uh, literally, she gets like flambeed in that movie, but... <laughs> Viscerally so. Yeah, it's like they're passing the torch on and they feel like they're, like, giving their performances and, um, they look... Every line delivery from Nev Campbell is just, like, exhausted and put upon and she's, like... Yeah, it's just like, ugh. The franchise is... Um, I didn't mention this, but neither Kevin Williamson nor Wes Craven were, like, really seriously involved with this. And yeah. it's, like, a big departure and you can definitely tell from some of the writing that it lacks a bit of the bite and, um... The visual style, which we haven't touched too much on, like, in 4, it's, like, very, like, harsh, like, blacks and whites. It's, like, these contrasts between lighting. And this is, like, kind of, like, Zoomer, like, A24, like, neons and stuff the whole time. Yeah, it looks very, like, clean. Clean. It doesn't feel, like, dirty and soap opery as the other ones do. Um, and everyone, like, the, the movie franchise is knowingly exhausted with itself. They're carrying yeah, on. Yeah, I think it's the most cynical one, really. Because, like, the characters, yeah. like, barely even care about 
the other characters. Like everyone's just sitting around talking about those zoomers hate the each fo- other. Yeah, I mean that's I mean that's accurate probably, but yeah, exactly. The, <laughs> it, I do think it is like very much the condition of like the characters sit around being like, and then next like, you know. This is gonna happen because it's a horror movie. It's the Goya and painting. Then, yeah, where they're holding like, them up. Oh, and don't go downstairs! Ha ha ha! Like, oh, now someone related to the legacy character is gonna get killed, and then um, Wes and Judy get killed, and they're like, "Let's have a party inexplicably." Oh, they do then the first one when the principal gets killed. So yeah. I guess that's that. Someone dies, they have a party. Is very linked to that too. But at this point in the franchise, we're in such a maze of like self-reference and like postmodernism that like every other movie in the industry is like doing the same kind of like knowing, winking stuff, yeah. and. Instead of doing that, they do do it, but it comes across as, like, depressed and, like, on Zoloft. It feels yeah. like a very, like, drugged-out movie. She's taking her pills the whole movie, too. Oh, yeah, true, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I do think that's why they go back to the first movie rather than lean into the stabs. Yeah. Because, like, the two and three especially are so much about stab. Right. And, um, you know, four to a certain extent, because they're, like, they're filming it, and they're, like, making their own movie, and they're the director. Uh-huh. And then five is not even about being the director or taking charge. It's just about being the fan, like... It's about it's about them. Yes. It's about needling them to make more stab, basically. But I, it, I do like that they go back to scream instead of going or going back to stab theoretically. Like, right. Well, I completely agree with that too, because like when there is like that really horrible monologue at the end of the movie, where like which one? Where he, which one out of maybe forty, where the boyfriend is like revealed to be the killer? And oh, then, that okay. And he's like, oh, we met on a subreddit. He's like, <laughs> that's, that's so funny. The fans, and I was like, okay. And then I'm like, it is. This is the first time that the movie franchise has kind of like talked about like the fans, quote yeah, unquote. I think especially for a horror movie, it's rare. Like, mm-hmm. it's so common in like Star Wars or um, like we've talked yeah. about Marvel to like think of the fans yeah. and like you know the idea of like fan service and referencing like yeah. other characters making this you know Marvel has really perfected the art of like the cross media this movie hates franchise. its viewers yeah and this movie hates it and it's like you know the fans yeah. are literally the villains they hate the fans this movie and is... they're like look good here we we called back to Heather Graham as, um, uh-huh. as Casey as uh, Drew Barrymore as Casey again like Aren't you, aren't you happy? And the whole cycle... And I was. It's so, I was happy. When I watched it the first time and they, like, acknowledged Heather Graham having been Casey... I was like... I was like... Yeah. Because you know they didn't care about Heather Graham at the time when they were doing that. Like, they right. weren't like, we're going to write this into all the... Like, you know, they were like, we need someone. And she was probably, like, fresh from filming Twin uh-huh. Peaks or whatever the fuck. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when they called back to, like, Heather Graham of all things, that's when I was like, oh, I know this movie's going to take the, the references in it really seriously and details really seriously. And they have that... Blink and you'll miss it moment of like confirming Kirby Reed is alive. Right. Because that was a fan thing. Because people have been thinking that on, you said, on yeah. Twitter, yeah. On Twitter, the whole thing was like, oh, you know. This deleted we scene. Think, we think Kirby's alive. Wes Craven obviously thought Kirby was alive. Like, right. we want to see Kirby in the fifth one, and she wasn't in the fifth one. Yeah. But I think they've signed Hidden Hair here for the sixth, the sixth one now. One, yeah. I mean, she's not But like, there's else, so, so much. Um, also, a big thing on Twitter, so I'm wondering if they're going to do this in the sixth, was. Um, Stu Mocker should theoretically be alive in this franchise. Oh, because he only got his head knocked on. We didn't really yeah, yeah. see him die. Exactly. Like, anyone they didn't see die were like, now we need Stu Mocker back. And, like, I think there was a script uh. for the second one that, like, had that. Oh, I think it was maybe the third or... I can't yeah, like, remember anyway. Yeah, like, so, like, you know, but now the fans fix it on these ideas and they found the yeah. trivia and they, like, you know, tweet, like, at, at, not at Wes Craven, but, you know, at Kevin Williamson, like, <laughs> we want this. And um, then this whole movie franchise, like, takes all of those, like, internet references. It pays very 
careful attention to like fan lore and stuff. Yeah, because they didn't have to put in that that one second thumbnail of Kirby Reed, but they no. did because they've seen that. But it's misanthropic. It hates everyone who likes these movies. It's like it's giving you the references, but then it's being like, why do you like this? Like, right. what's wrong with you? And the whole tone of it, like the Zoloft like texture of it, it's all very like hateful and depressing, which I love. Yeah, no, they, again, like like we keep saying, there's no out of it. This goes so deep in that there is absolutely no way out. And they better. I hope they don't kill Sydney like post text in the next. Oh, movie. yeah, that would really suck. I they better not talking about like what fans want. I don't actually. Think, they I don't should think do anything. it. Well, that's what they did with Alex Browning. They but he was fucking, never. He was yeah. never the cool one though. They should like really butcher her actually like, off screen like have like the worst movie and like and just like show her like corpse like in ribbons. Oh my god! <laughs> just like, to piss like, everyone off. Fully CGI because like Nev Campbell refuses to film it. Exactly. So, thinking about the Scream franchise, thinking about this, like, postmodern melt, thinking about the Goya paintings, which are their own first uh, self-referential images of horror, actualizing sexual impulses, terrifying threads of your own being, and putting it all on a stage that continues to collapse and degrade into itself as I'm creating the new world on my podcast. What do we do with all of this? What what philosophy are we going to take from this? Oh, that's a good question. That's very hard-hitting. I don't know what to say to that. I think what philosophy that I personally take from it, I guess, is that's um, a good place to start. Yeah, I guess yeah. is um, that you like you're always going like Sydney, like you're always going to be in this in this mess in this in the miso soup of horror movies. Yes, without without <laughs> control over it. Uh huh. And um, like you have to like like Jill Roberts tries to do is you have to um find your thing within it, and hopefully that thing is not um killing women. Killing people, everyone, but sometimes yeah. it is. I think um, you're exactly right. Sometimes it's like, you know, like we do with drag. It's um, remaking and killing yourself repeatedly. <gasps> yes. For me, Scream and Goya together to me are saying that, like, there is absolutely no control, like you said, over, like, this uh, terrifying cloud of culture that has become a really morbid and disgusting thing, as depicted throughout the Scream series and the Goya paintings. We have no power over changing that. So what we have to do is work with the archetypes it gives us and actualize them as truthfully yeah. as possible and try to make something good out of yeah, it. Yeah, or subvert them, because Scream is all about subverting that's what you're true, supposed to do. Yeah. And, I mean, that's what we do with, like... With drag. At least I <laughs> I feel like I'm doing that with my gender all the time, of, like, uh huh. you know, as a man, you're supposed to do one thing, and we're doing the opposite of that thing. Yeah. Um, <gasps> ah, you're so like, right! But, like, also, you know, you and I both, we like to um, do what's not expected of drag, either. Mm-hmm. Um, which... Is not, I think, and that's caused by media, because I was going to say, drag really can be anything, it uh. should be everything, and historically has been until we get Drag Race, which narrowed it. This is a big plot thread on I'm So Popular Season 3, uh, is what Drag sense. Race has done to all of us. Like, it, we, like we live in its shadow. There there are people who hate Drag Race more than I do, uh-huh. like Belgium, who despise it. I love it, but it's evil. I, I owe it a lot of the, my knowledge about current drag. And of course, like, especially yeah. It formed so much of my image of before I was a drag queen. Yeah. But also, I see how destructive it's been, and now I really... I, I say this as I'm about to host a drag... Um, <laughs> drag a, a drag race, race viewing drag party drag. next week. Uh, I hope no one listens to this before next week. But, um, you know, I do think it's um, destructive in how it narrows... This is the not, gift horse it, you have to look in the it mouth. It narrows the audience of perception of what drag should be. It, it, yeah. Not, not even that it narrows our perception of what our drag should be. It uh-huh. narrows what people want to go see. Drag Race is Scream 5, but for, like... But serious. For a fucking decade and a half. Like, literally. 
like it's the whole like depressed Zoloft, extremely focused like yeah, repetition well, of cycles. I think because like you know there are some early seasons of Drag Race that I like. Oh, they're yeah. very raw. Up until season six, I think those series is like fully like fleshed and lived in and terrifying. Yeah, exactly. And, like, all of these like deranged meth heads like fighting with each other. And well, it's yeah, because it was drag queens that had not been influenced by Drag Race, and right. now it's been out so long that Every everyone, one including people our age, yeah, are like living in that shadow. And the people who are old enough to remember what it wasn't like now like, can't oh get God. on. Drag Race is the fucking flag on that Goya painting. It's the face on the flag. Yeah, it's, it's RuPaul. <laughs> it's, it's fucking RuPaul looking down at all of us and saying, dance, monkey, dance. But you know what? But I think that's so true is like, in this world where expectations are so narrow, uh-huh. like trying to do something that is different is difficult. And extremely. It's, it's fundamentally related because like when you are rebelling against something, you're still always related to what you're about. Right, exactly. Against. You can't truly rebel against something that you care about enough to oppose, I guess. Exactly. I don't know. Like, Scream loves horror movies. And it right, loves exactly. itself. And it, like, it rebels against itself. But by doing that, it's always going to be fundamentally related to the medium. And, like, that is what makes drag magic as well. Is like, you are eternally devoted to the shrine of femininity. But you're you know, by nature, fucking it up and, like, changing it yeah. in some way. And, and like, like, that's a holy pageant. Drag being so, um, you know, political and always having such a place in um, major social movements in the mm-hmm. U.S. and elsewhere, and drag queens always being on the forefront of um, queer rights as well, is, yeah. like, you still can't get out from under the shadow of all the oppression that makes this, that, you know, that has birthed this medium in the first place. We are stuck in Scream forever. <laughs> We're in the Stab movies, and, like, all you can do is, like, act the fuck out of it.